the Northmen believe that Valhalla is the great hall where the god Odin houses the dead whom he deems worthy of dwelling with him. Its roof is made of gold and is made of shields and has spears for its rafters. Seats made of breastplates surround the many feasting tables of the vast hall. Its gates are guarded by wolves and eagles fly above it. The dead who reside in Valhalla, the Einariar, live a life that would have been the envy of any Viking warrior. All day long they fight one another, doing countless valorous deeds along the way. But every evening, all their wounds are healed, and they are restored to full health. They surely work up quite an appetite from all those battles, and their dinners don't disappoint. Their meat comes from the boar Sairimnir, who comes back to life every time he is slaughtered and butchered. For their drink, they have mead that comes from the udder of the goat Aidrun. They thereby enjoy an endless supply of their exceptionally fine food and drink. And they are waited on by the beautiful Valkyries. But the Einaryar won't live this charmed life forever. Valhalla's battle-honed residents are there by the will of Odin, who collects them for the perfectly selfish purpose of having them come to his aid in his fated struggle against the wolf Fenrir during Ragnarok, a battle in which Odin and the Einariar are doomed to die. got done going over the great heathen army and the establishment of the Dane law, the Viking settlements in England, and how England was largely under Viking control. But at the same time, there's a slow conversion to Christianity taking place. Like with Guthrum's defeat and the subsequent baptism and changing of his name to Athelstan. So as the Viking Age has been moving along, there's been a sort of mixing of this Viking Nordic culture and European Christian culture. Now whether the Christian and Norse nations were aware of it or not, they were being mixed together. Which is a good thing, considering who the European Christians were fighting, the Vikings, and it's not that the soldiers of the Saxon kingdoms, the Franks, the Italians, so on, so on, that they weren't good fighters. 
But the Vikings were a whole different class, and that is partly due to where they were from, and again, their culture. In a way, you could look at the Vikings as one of the last classic age civilizations that sort of survived the extinction period, if you will, of those ancient civilizations, the Greeks, the Romans, so on and so forth. When the Roman Empire became Christian, polytheistic pagan cultures weren't as prevalent in terms of being a big presence in Europe. The Norse cultures had farms, but they were comparatively poor compared to the farms of the Christian nations. Wheat and oats weren't as plentiful for them, so they had to eat a lot of fish or whatever game they could hunt. But eventually they would realize this is not sustainable in the long term, so they would have to resort to raiding other places to enjoy their food. And while you're there, get a bunch of souvenirs, gold and such. So you're on this sort of strict diet, going to other lands and fighting, which fighting technically can be considered a form of exercise. Trying to get food. You're going to be quite the tough bunch if this is the norm for you. But imagine from the perspective of the Christian nations. Imagine winning over people like that to your side. People with that warrior spirit. As it would happen, there was just such a Viking and a very important one. When tracing the lineage of the monarchs that would follow in Europe afterwards, he would attack an important Christian nation and be fended off. Sometime after his defeat, he would be baptized and take on a new name. If that sounds a lot like Guthrum from the previous episode, it actually isn't, although he has a small part to play in this. This particular Viking went by the name Rollo. Much like his contemporaries, there are limited sources when it comes to Rollo, at least his early life. His later years are a little more concrete than those who came before him. The primary account we have for Rollo comes from the French historian Dudo. There's also a little bit of a hang-up as to which Nordic country Rollo came from. And this goes back to the references to the Vikings as Vikings, Danes, Northmen, Swedes, Norwegians, Scandinavians, all of the far north countries that they all hailed from. According to Dudo, Rollo was from Denmark. His early life was not uncharacteristic of ancient peoples. Rough. His father was a nobleman in Denmark who didn't exactly have a very good standing with its king. Later European historians building off of Dudo's work seem to confirm his noble lineage in their own accounts. Quote, Born of noble lineage among Norwegians, Rollo sailed with his fleet to the Christian coast. End quote. So he was from a noble family. That Danish king who had a bit of a grudge with Rollo's father, likely had him killed, and did have Rollo's brother Gurum killed, which forced Rollo to leave the country. Conveniently for the young Rollo, the conflict between England 
and the great heathen army was still going on, an opportunity was there. So Rollo would go and make a name for himself in a few battles during the latter years of the conquest of the great army. At some point, he even earned himself the nickname The Walker due to his height. Legend says that he was so tall, he was too big for Norwegian horses, and thus he preferred to walk rather than ride a horse. He was likely a sight to behold for the Saxons. I mean, just imagine a guy who was likely six feet five or taller. I mean, it's not possible that there were seven-footers back then, but it was still a rare thing. It'd be so that he'd be a giant of a man in those days, and a Viking who grew up fighting. And at, let's say, the Battle of Marathon, in the thick of it, likely using a large axe and just taking out dozens of Saxons. He's the kind of guy you'd probably want to get switched over to your side in that type of conflict. So this guy Rollo, aside from being a giant of a man, he starts to make a name for himself and gets noticed by the leaders of the great army. He strikes up a friendship with a king by the name of Alstom, which was another recorded name for Athelstan. You'll remember that Athelstan was the baptismal name for the leader, for the last leader of the great army, Guthrum. Guthrum, Athelstan, Alstom, what have you, sees a lot of potential for this guy, this guy Rollo. He gives him the idea of taking a page out of Ragnar's saga and that he should try to raid Paris. Since the great heathen army had already been making great strides in England and had taken over three kingdoms, might as well see where else the Vikings can set up influence. So in 876, Rollo sets out for the kingdom of West Francia. But instead of heading directly to Paris, he started further northwest up the Seine River and took the city of Rouen. Rollo, like his earlier contemporaries and his fellows in England, wanted to set up permanent settlements. He spends the next nine years consolidating and defending his newfound land in Rouen, fending off attacks from the West Frankish soldiers, trying to retake their land. The closest the Franks ever came to taking the land back from Rollo was with a commander named Robert of the Breton March. Now, this guy gave Rollo a run for his money. Robert destroyed the surrounding settlements under Rollo's influence, and he nearly took out Rouen. But Viking tactics like hit and runs, for example, proved to be a problem for Robert. As well as whenever Robert could engage Rollo's forces, the Vikings fought with such a tenacity that the fights that Robert would win would be costly. That cost would eventually prove to be too much for Robert of the Breton March to continue, and he had to concede the territory to Rollo. Rouen and the immediate surrounding territory were still under Viking control. Fast forward to the year 885, Rollo finally sets his sights on Paris. Paris has changed by this point, too, since Ragnar led a force nearly 40 years earlier. The city's defenses have drastically improved. 
after Ragnar, but prior to Rollo, three more raids were attempted on Paris, and while they did have to be bribed to leave, they couldn't breach the city. The defenses were initially started by the Paris royalty, like constructing two bridges. One was made of stone and the other was made of wood. And the point of these bridges was they were constructed in such a way that no boats, not even the, the sleek and mobile Viking ship, could pass under them even. Now Paris also at this time was only an island and has not expanded to how we know it today. The portion of Paris today that Rollo and the Vikings would have attacked is called Ile de la Cité, which literally translates to City Island. My pronunciation of that might have been a bit more Spanish than French, I'm not sure, so forgive me on that one. But the significance of these bridges, again, was so that no ships could pass them. So the Vikings can't pass. And that's a problem if you're wanting to raid other towns. And in addition to these bridges, there are also large guard towers installed, as well as the sort of features that you'd expect along the walls of the city, like large pots able to pour pitch or hot wax or oil. An interesting thing to note here is that some of these defenses were obviously started and wanted by the Frankish royalty, but they were unable to finish building them. It got to the point where the regular citizens voluntarily, as in without order from the king or anyone, helped with the construction of the defenses. And that sort of tells you something about how terrifying the Vikings were to the rest of Europe, when even the common citizens, the peasantry, are saying to their rulers, we appreciate what you've built, but we don't think it's enough. But how about what Rollo was bringing to the table? Well, Rollo's not coming alone. In addition to his force, he has invited a couple of chieftains, Sinric and Siegfried, to bring their own warriors to join the opportunity of plunder. So the thought probably comes to mind just exactly how many Vikings are on their way to Paris at this time. This is where things got interesting for me reading about this. The 885 Siege of Paris comes from an eyewitness account. It's from a man named Abos Kernuis. Again, my pronunciations are likely off, but I'm just going to refer to him as Abo. Abo claims that 700 ships carrying anywhere from 30 to 40,000 Viking warriors made their way down the Seine River to Paris, demanding payment from King Charles or they would begin to lay siege. Modern historians give that Abo was indeed an eyewitness to the siege, but they call him a bit of a gross exaggerator. An exaggerator to the point of saying, quote, in a class of his own as an exaggerator, end quote. Okay, fine. Kind of like how Gandalf said to Bilbo in the Hobbit films that tales deserve a little bit of embellishment. So what do modern historians or historians closer to present what do they what have they determined is the number of vikings that actually laid siege to paris historians cw previtt orton and john norris each put the viking fleet at 300 okay 
So we're down from 40,000 warriors and 700 ships as our kind of max to a generally agreed 300 ships. So how many warriors? Well, after a quick bit of math, that would put it at roughly 42 Vikings per ship, which would put the force at about 12,600. So you've got nearly 13,000 Viking warriors here. I'd just like to point out that, that that force is more than double the size of the great heathen army that was just running roughshod all over England a few years earlier. You'll remember from the last episode I made the Roman legion comparison to the great heathen army was the size of one legion. Well, Rolla was part of a force that is the size of two plus change. So I can kind of forgive Abo for seeing 300 ships with almost 13,000 Viking warriors likely banging on terrifying war drums and chanting as they make their way to the city and thinking that the force is almost 40,000 because, again, 13,000 warriors is a lot of people for Europe at this time. And imagine just seeing that on the horizon. 13,000 people. That's a sight to take in. What's even more impressive for the Franks, their commander, Count Odo, only had 200 men-at-arms to defend the city. So we're talking about army size differences similar to Leonidas and his 300 Spartans versus thousands of Persian soldiers a little more than a thousand years before. You've got really lopsided numbers here. Rollo and his allied Viking force would arrive outside Paris on November 24, 885. They did, as is tradition, demand tribute from the Franks, but the Franks denied them. And so Rollo's allied Viking force began laying siege to Paris with a large assortment of ballistae and catapults. They would make an attempt to scale up the Northeast Tower, but they were repelled by the Franks' use of hot wax and oil. The Vikings would pull back for a couple of days and set up camp on the opposing shore. By November 27th, the Vikings would attempt battering rams and hammering spears through the gate to pull the gate open with ropes and chains tied to the spears on one end and horses on the other. Again, no success. This sort of thing would go on for the next two months. Continuous Viking assaults on the city. One assault saw Siegfried and Sinric, remember, Rollo's allies, order a well-constructed catapult barrage that saw, as best as could be achieved with catapults, 1,000 consecutive shots lobbed at the city. I imagine that had to probably put quite a bit of damage to the walls. Various assault strategies would continue. They assaulted the gate again, but this time, as part of a diversion... Three ships were set on fire and sent against the wooden bridge to burn it down. While the bridge didn't fall, it was severely damaged, and this is going to be important for later. In the meantime, they would dig trenches and take whatever provisions they could get from the surrounding land. Another tactic that they tried was to fill the river with as much stuff as they possibly could. Plants, dead animals, dead prisoners debris, 
anything they could throw in the river to make it easier to get around the defense tower. Sort of make your own bridge by just throwing as much stuff in the river as you could. By February, the Vikings were finally beginning to make some progress in their siege. Partly because of a little bit of luck. A series of rainstorms caused the river, which the Vikings had just been previously dumping as much debris as they could, to overflow. And the bridge supports of that burnt bridge that they tried those three fire ships against. The bridge didn't fall at that time, but it was severely damaged. The bridge supports fail. It collapses. This left 12 Frankish defenders cut off from the city. They were given the opportunity to surrender to the Vikings, but they refused and were killed. The progress, however, being made, was going a bit slow as far as the morale of the Viking force. Things were on a bit of a decline. Motivation, enthusiasm is not exactly high anymore at this point since it's been taking months to just take this bridge down. Siegfried again tried demanding a ransom of silver, but was again declined. He would abandon the siege to raid other towns. Tsinrik was killed in one of the assaults on the city. This would leave Rollo as the sole commander of the now reduced Viking force. And because of this reduced force, Count Odo was able to sneak a messenger past the Vikings and get word to King Charles to send reinforcements. There's no exact date other than it being in the year 886, although it was likely late spring, because Charles would arrive with reinforcements and force Rollo to retreat back to his ships, and by summer, Rollo would attempt one last assault on Paris, but he would be defeated by Charles as the Imperial Army had begun to arrive. With this Imperial Army in front of him, Rollo had now been forced to retreat and set up camp at a place called Montmartre. King Charles and Count Odo would trap Rollo here. Fortunately for Rollo, Charles had no intention of fighting. As a matter of fact, Charles was actually impressed by the progress that Rollo's force had made in laying siege to Paris and actually wanted to make peace with the Vikings by offering to formally recognize Rollo's holdings in Rouen on two sort of interlinked conditions. These conditions were that he would, one, convert to Christianity, and two, defend King Charles's burgeoning empire from further Viking attacks. Rollo would agree, and he and King Charles would sign the Treaty of saint clair sur Rollo would take on the Christian name Robert, but for the sake of avoiding confusion, I'm going to continue to refer to him as Rollo, as another Robert comes up in this little story. Rollo divides his holdings between the Riel and empty rivers among his men, and he settled in his already occupied Rouen. As a bit of a cherry on top for Rollo, King Charles offered his daughter Princess Gisela to him in marriage. 
With Rollo now married into the royal family, the lands he held were officially renamed to Normandy. The Frankish word for land of the Vikings or land of the Northmen. Now, remember when I said at the start of this whole thing, imagine if you can get some of these people on your side. This pays off for King Charles by getting Rollo on his side. Because some time later, a revolt would happen and he is overthrown by his successor, Robert of Neustria. Robert was not overly fond of the Vikings and wanted to drive them out of Francia regardless of what agreements his king had made. Robert and his son clashed with Rollo's forces and were crushed. Rollo killed Robert and Robert's son Ralph had to give up the lands of Bessin and Maine to Rollo, thus expanding Rollo's own influence. So the investment of Rollo has paid off. Although King Charles probably didn't realize how far-stretching this investment would be, Rollo's impact on history is actually still felt to this day. Rollo's son, William Longsword, and his grandson, Richard the Fearless, made Normandy even stronger. They helped assimilate with the French culture. Again, the Northmen made this region their home, and this part of France was Normandy. Rollo's further descendants also conquered England, Sicily, and even lands as far as the Middle East. And the last one, of note, is Rollo is also the great-grandfather of William I of England, who later became William the Conqueror, who plays an important part in the later episode. Therefore, Rollo is one of the ancestors of the present-day British royal family and several other European monarchs through his descendants. In a way, Rollo was probably the first true prototype of a Viking Christian. He earnestly took to his new faith while retaining the warrior mentality as a Viking. This quote probably encapsulates the converted Rollo, quote, I am like a snake which has shed its skin. The pattern is the same, but the snake is new, end quote. Rollo is not the last of the Viking coverage I want to do. As far as the great leaders of the Vikings go, the two big ones I still want to hit are King Canute and Harald Hardrada. If I can squeeze him in, he's more remembered as a bit of an explorer, but I would like to get in Leif Erikson. But that's what's to come. And as is tradition, to wrap this up, quotes. And a quote from Rollo, which is a call to courage both for his time and for ours. And it goes like this, quote, All of my life and all of your lives have come to this point. There is nowhere else to be but here. Nowhere else to live or die but here. To be here now is the only thing that matters. So gather yourselves, gather all of your strength, 
and all of your sweetness into an iron ball, for we will attack again and again until we reach and overcome, or we die in the attempt. End quote. He's right. You don't have to be in warfare either for this to apply. If you want something, or to achieve something, say a prayer, muster all that you are, try and try again, until you succeed, or die trying. Thanks for listening.